that's one of the most <laughs> that's one of the most like pro immigrant pro undocumented immigrant thing you can do is like don't go through this checkpoint <laughs> like, don't was. come to this place <laughs> yeah no exactly so um and these people were saying we don't think Welcome to the Nuestro South podcast. This is where we talk about being Latinos. Y también Latinas. No, Latinx. In the South. This is for us, y'all. The history in this episode is based on the book Corazón de Dixie by Julie M. Wise. I'm Axel. I'm Daisy. And I'm Brian. We're Latino students in the South, and we are your hosts. So with today's episode, uh, we'll focus on the millions of Mexicanos that were essential to the agricultural labor uh, throughout all the rural South as migrant workers since the 1960s to the early 2000s. And uh, for this time period, a key location was Georgia's majority black agricultural areas. And uh, this was a period after the civil rights movement uh, when these areas were still struggling with what integration was actually going to look like once it was finally carried out. And like my uncles, uh, most of the Mexicanos in, this, in these areas came in crews that were based in like south in the southwest in Florida, and then finally settling in Georgia. And uh, Daisy will tell us more about one individual's experience through this. Yeah, so um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Israel Cortez. So he actually uh, starts off in Mexico, in the state of Mexico, with his parents and um, and after completing sixth grade in 1980, his parents decide to move the entire family to Oklahoma. And um, they only stayed there for a little bit because they're in the search for higher wages. So they moved to Florida and there they joined um, a lot of other migrants who spent the winters there picking oranges, but then moved up to Michigan for the summer so that they could keep making money um, when the orange harvest, you know, wasn't in full um, kind of like swing in Florida. But then um, in 1984, they decide to go to work in Georgia instead of Michigan because in Georgia you picked cucumbers, peppers, squash, and tomatoes all through um, April through December. So that worked out better for their schedule. Um, and Israel's story really um, like sticks out because in previous episodes we've talked about kind of like the ordeals that parents have gone through to get their children into certain schools, what they, what strategies they've used to access better resources in their communities. And I think this is unique because Israel being, you know, an immigrant himself moving at an early age, but also kind of like following along like his immigrant parents and being the actual like kid that gets um, put into these different schools kind of gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on in those schools or in certain schools once these um, migrant children are, are joining their classmates. Um, what exactly was happening like inside the school? Um, did he struggle at all or uh, did he face any problems that his yeah, parents could have? Yeah, definitely. So Israel recounts um, that his school years were rough, tough, and frustrating. Um, he craved academic success but felt confused and alienated by assignments particularly because of the language barrier um so in a way it's not the the fact that he couldn't really grasp the material but rather that it was in a language that he couldn't understand he also mentioned teasing over food like having to think about what was going to happen when he took out a rolled taco in front of like his classmates and people calling him names, people telling his family um, to 
like go back to where they came from and people being hesitant to interact and engage with him. So he does talk about making drastic changes to address some of those um, obstacles. But what really, really stood out to me was um, the fact that it was these little day-to-day things in school, like eating lunch, completing assignments that were the things that he that most sticked out um, in his story. Um, kind of going going with with kind of the story you're telling, which is particularly interesting because we're talking about like the the young youth, uh, but attaching it to this time period, it's actually a long time period. It's 1960s, early 2000s. Um, Daisy, you have a little bit of personal experience with uh kind of maybe that being that young person that is very close to agricultural and farming work. Um, how does that, I guess, for, for a young person, how does that influence your daily life? Or what do you see from your family, from your from your friends, from those that like work this type of uh, jobs? Well, I think what I like about Israel's story, or I guess it's not something to like, but what resonates with me is both the combination of the migrant um like lifestyle and then um the academic i guess like challenges because kind of like like Israel um i remember like struggling with english and feeling like like there was something wrong with like my academic abilities just because i wasn't able to um relay like my thoughts in the language that everyone around me was speaking and then that brings back like particular memories of my high school in like the rural south where there's constantly new immigrants like coming in that are making their way um along these like trails so um you know spending some months here picking these certain crops and then spending these other months um in another state so a lot of the students that are like moving along with their parents have to go from school to school, like doing a couple of months in one high school and then a couple of months in another. Mm-hmm. And so like I remember in my high school once we had like a couple of new kids that were one of the like traveling like um in like these migrant farm worker families. And a lot of us that speak like that are bilingual in English and Spanish would help them like translate um like their worksheets um but in this one occasion we had a substitute teacher and she implemented like this like no talking policy where we just all had to like do our own work mm-hmm. but um I stood up and like helped like I stood up and walked over to the desk of like this kid who and explained in Spanish to him what the worksheet said in English and the substitute teacher, like, yelled at me and said, like, there's no talking. And I told her, well, I'm explaining to him, like, what he needs to do, like, on this assignment so that he can do it. And she still, like, held her ground and said, no, like, no talking means no talking. Like, give him a thesaurus. And so, <laughs> um, and that was, like, a, a thing. Like, even in, like, my art classes, there were, like, a lot of these, ki- like, high schoolers, like, that came from like the traveling like migrant backgrounds all that they would get was a thesaurus despite the fact that there was a lot of us there that could have been like interpreting for them translating for them like we were there we were kind of like barred from doing that Mm. um so i definitely experienced like firsthand in my early years like that language barrier that academic barrier but then I was able to overcome it, I think, because I was lucky enough to have a good ESL program at a certain point in my youth. And then I wasn't traveling, like, all the time, despite the fact that I have been engaged in, like, this type of, like, farm work. 
it's different, I think, when you're traveling from state to state. Yeah, uh, that is really, um, it's really harsh. And by the thor- uh, thesaurus, you do mean like Spanish-English dictionary? Yeah, Spanish-English thesaurus. Gotcha, yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah. And you mentioned that uh, you were involved with farm work. What do you mean by that? Uh, so I spent like summers, and this was always like during the summers, working um, in packing sheds where like the one that I worked at was like right next to this field where like the farm workers are like picking like crops and stuff and then right next to it it's like it's literally like a little shed like a little warehouse there's a warehouse and then beside it there's like an outside shed because there was so much crops coming in that needed to be packaged that the space inside the warehouse wasn't enough so they like set up a bunch of conveyor belts outside beside the warehouse and then just put like a little like tin like roof on top of it and I worked um you were lucky enough you were lucky if you worked like in the warehouse because that one had AC and then (laughs) some of us got screwed and had to work outside like in the little shed and that's where I worked but basically it was just like conveyor belt was coming through and we were just packing like um um bell peppers like cucumbers squash um sorting them the ones that were like trash like throwing them in the trash the ones that were big small by color Mm-hmm. It's a very different reality. I mean, uh, especially in terms of like when, when, you know, anyone from me, I'm not from kind of a rural area, but if you think about farm labor, I'm one, you barely think about it ever. And then uh, two, like it, 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 either with the Israel Cortez story and the, the fact that it was a family, similar with your story, uh, we're talking about kind of like family units that kind of do this work. And from some of the history of these people, there was also kind of like pride in it. And I think it, it really goes along with this like notion of like of immigrants and immigrant labor and immigrant like work ethic uh duro you know all the time you're trying to do the best you can kind of maybe for maybe like for like the future but it always seems that it's like for the next person to come for for whoever's yeah. next mm-hmm. and and in some situations like these workers it's like you have to put up with a lot um mm-hmm. at, as a kid, if you're kind of from this background, you as a kid are also putting up with a lot and then hoping that eventually you'll you'll move up. Um, and then I just wanted to bring out an interesting point that specifically for Georgia and the place we're talking about, you know, 1960s, we're talking about post-civil rights and, and, and rural Georgia with majority black population. There was starting to be a shift. We're talking about a shift where it wasn't black farm labor in the area, which had, you know, for for years, decades, you know, been what was driving the the economy for, for probably centuries, actually. Um, but rather, now is immigrants. And, and it was always this kind of notion that, like, oh, we need substitute labor, right? We need someone to take up. We need someone to do the, the jobs that maybe, you know, the black population wasn't willing to do anymore. And that's what, you know, many of these immigrants came into. At first, there were Tejanos and Mexican-Americans migrating to the area. And then later, it was undocumented individuals and those coming with visas as well. So, Israel's story is, like, in, in the 80s. But I think, like, what you mean, like, the time after, like, the civil rights movement is, like, this key period. Like, I agree. And, for example, like, wanting to... um I guess supply the this gap that a lot of like the flight that a lot of like black families that had historically been like working the lands of the south um mm-hmm. filling that labor in with immigrant labor and Mexican labor so like a lot of Georgia's majority white factory towns were recruiting Mexican labor in the late 1970s so kind of like not only in like the actual like 
farm like fields so in a lot of like the factories that have to like process like um like poultry and pork like stuff like that and they were actively recruiting that that mexican labor um and so there was also backlash like in one way you have like the, the business like the economy like pulling these immigrants in and then at the same time getting negative responses like the kind that Israel's family and Israel was like facing in school but also more um i guess like harsh um responses like from even like in North Georgia from the KKK that was kind of like targeting certain families during that time period like in the late 70s yeah uh, i actually want to bring up um because you did mention like uh as a youth in school uh you needed to be the one that came up and translated a lot of like the English worksheets and stuff. And then when we uh, move over to like um, the agricultural workers conditions, um, like, did you also somehow use that? Um, Well, I guess two questions. Did you also somehow use being bilingual to help them out? And the second question would be like, who was the, who was the they that um, they were getting negative responses to? Like you mentioned the KKK, but, um, uh, I guess I also wanted to bring up how uh, how the political atmosphere was at the time of with Israel. Um, well, I think yeah. it's whenever the like in Israel Cortez's story, like a lot of the negative responses were just like those slight comments that he talks about, like in school, like oh, like why does your lunch like like so look so different from like our lunches um etc but i think like it's a uh, crucial to point out that usually when we say they like some people might automatically think um you know like american american means white white um negative responses to immigrants must mean like conservative like republican and a key distinction um to make here is that at that time there was a different republican party um at that time um being republican was not necessarily synonymous with and i don't i'm not trying to say that's how it is today but i think at that time you could be a very like um praised like republican like figure but still be very vocally kind of like in support of um immigrants um coming in and filling these jobs um and not necessarily there wasn't as much i guess attention being paid to um to a lot of the things that we pay attention to right now in the um left versus right immigration like debate i think um the word the term that's used um in by julie wise um in the book corazon de dixie where we um took israel cortez's story from is pro-immigrant conservatism and kind of like exploring more of like what it meant to be conservative and be pro-immigrant at that time. Yeah, so I, I saw that at first and I was like, huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> it did not make sense. <laughs> yeah, like, never heard of that before. Um, yeah, but like, it, it does sort of Pro speak to that. <laughs> yeah. It speaks to that, um, to that whole, like, uh, sort of like background idea that um, uh, right now, uh, we don't, like, I guess, uh, farm owners back then, uh, were just thinking, like, like hey uh i don't care if you are documented if you're here on visa or anything like you're valuable to me because you can help me economically um and like uh while like on one hand i think um sure that like offered opportunity and like some kind of foothold for immigrants to come and get work but it sort of put them at 
sort of, um, how would you say, uh, in the hands of the farm owners, that as soon as they don't, like, need you anymore, like, you're sort of lost in that. I was wondering what you two thought about, like, how how that was kept up or how that has changed from now. Yeah, um, I had a couple comments. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's very interesting. I think, uh, you know, we've talked before a little bit with, with Daisy in terms of what type of relationship existed. Um, but to your question, it, and this is Daisy's response in a way, is paternalistic. Um, and what I took away mm -hmm. is just how how the conditions the conditions of workers the pay of workers uh specifically in a, in a place where um you know these aren't the mexicans that were you know advocating to or or reaching out to their government and saying we need help mm. these are yeah. workers that were there kind of just there and their stronghold was kind of their own family and keeping each other together keeping each other strong and so they were kind of susceptible to the conditions and the stuff they were doing and just trying to do their best and then you have in these situations where you have these farmers that wanted these workers that wanted them that they it was this weird relationship where you were glad you had these you got to know them but i saw it as something that was fragile because at any point where the worker the immigrant the agricultural laborer said hey this is not enough i'm not getting what i need um, this is not fair. Then what happens is like, oh, didn't I give you enough? D don't I? Don't you have all this work that I am providing for you? And from there, it's like it's like kind of this very tricky situation where, honestly, even you you see it today. Um, if you see kind of any work with undocumented immigrant workers, and if it's like a, a day to day job or someone hires you for like you know for some small job at your home. If you do anything to upset them, they can say at any point, oh, we just won't pay you. So yeah. it's, it's it's a very weird power dynamic that these like farmers had, especially like in the big situations. And the other point is that, you know, it's programming conservative. Um, and it was also very religious. And it's very interesting how like religion and Christianity came into into this and how they use that to kind of like build relationships with the workers. Um I don't know if you have some more to say, Daisy. Um, so, yeah, like, just to, I guess, clarify, like, what what you're referring to right now, like, this, like, power dynamic and, like, you use the word, um, like, paternalism, I guess something to kind of, like, contextualize what Axe was talking about is that, you know, during this time when families, like, Israel Cortez's family and, like, other families are, um, like, laboring um, in the fields and are engaging in, like, all this type of, like, farm work a lot of the farmers had a lot more personal contact with their workers on a regular basis mm -hmm. um and also there was a lot of interaction with church leaders that kind of like supplemented um what like farmers and growers weren't providing for their workers so in a way the charity acts of the church leaders protected the farmers and growers from criticism because they were supplementing the basic needs of these migrants so kind of like stepping in and filling in those gaps that weren't um being addressed so by instead the instead of paying them mm -hmm. oh we'll just give you charity yeah so it was kind right. of like farmers paying you this much where it might not be enough for like the kind the amount of food that you need for your family but because you have like all these church leaders having like food drives then you're not going hungry you know so it's kind of like okay the migrants aren't going hungry but it's 
because the like these different like church leaders are taking on this role of you know saviors like and i don't yeah, I, yeah um like a buyout a buyout yeah. we are checking this box and therefore we are not guilty and mm-hmm. and but but you know these relationships it, it's very weird because it's like you know the I guess the fondness of this system uh, between farmers and workers went the other way too. You know, you, and, and I personally have seen it in my family. So, you know, my parents have been just working forever. And, uh, and then for, for them, like working started, you know, six, seven years old. And when they, when they, when they see, when they know that, when they've experienced that, you know, working here, standard living or the type of work you hear, although tough, it's completely different to what they would be doing. And so in many of those situations, I feel like there's a, there's a, like they get reconciled with the conditions they're in. And so like these workers, like, I don't know how much they just accepted their conditions as like normal. And then they were still able to like say, Oh, this is good. Look, oh, like, like the, they look at the farmers and they still kept, kept a picture of them or they remember their time there, specifically those that had families. That's like with this level of fondness, which is very tricky because you understand that it's, it's something very complex. It's something that, you know, uh, despite these conditions, they were able to know each other's on a human level. And, and something that I, I thought while I was looking at it is like in those situations where there's so much of a power dynamic where some where one person or one group is benefiting so much and others are really struggling. Um, you can still have very human relationships and what you said is important. Like there were, there's a lot of proximity. There's a lot of closeness, but then what happens is that the system can still be very, very messed up and very, very, uh, very discriminatory, a lot of inequality in it. And so, and honestly, I feel like I still see that today. Like for example, with my parents and the work they do, you know, they'll have a job, they'll have a boss and you know, they'll smile to each other. They'll say hello and they'll do their work and they get home with their, their back hurts, their hands hurt or something. Mm. But they'll still think of their boss as a good person uh, and mm-hmm. vice versa. Yeah, it's kind of like separating, I guess, like, or not separating, but the fact that individual actors within, you know, like maybe like labor laws that are rooted in, in equity that aren't fair and in the kind of like policies like operating under policies that are unfair that make it so that one side is profiting off so much from the others like back like hurting and hands like hurting and then like we have the individuals like like not doing anything like explicitly like like racist or not doing anything explicitly like malicious but just operating within the bounds of an overarching like system of policies that makes it so that one side is at like taking essentially taking advantage of the other even if it's not through like explicit actions of any one individual yeah i sort of imagine these um these relationships is like uh like you said like very complex because um while some people may be like completely fine with it others are like uh i guess the fondness can be like really one-sided um just in the way that like uh word really gets around with like between different families and different groups especially with Mm -hmm. immigrants because what other way is there to communicate right um and uh for all of the farm owners during this time uh thinking that a charity or like a few i guess group photos or 
like community events would like fix it um while they might think that separating themselves from the identity of uh old bosses or form owners that like disrespected their workers or didn't provide like actual uh, better living conditions it's really hard to separate themselves from the identity so if like i guess we didn't really read much of like the farm owners like changing their attitudes or even asking about this thing in general but it's always like something to think about i guess and i think something i i I'd, I'd add is the way that not necessarily like the um opinions of like the immigrants like changed but the way that they saw themselves so the way that they see you know their back breaking labor and something that we've seen from this from like 1980s like Georgia like families like Israel's is that they documented like their work in the fields they took pictures um of themselves like laboring there they took pictures besides like their the trucks or like other vehicles that they were able to buy after um you know much um much work in in these field in these like jobs and what those pictures might represent to some of us looking at them now or even like people back then would be kind of like look at all these like mm -hmm. immigrants like being exploited like under the sun like etc cetera, etc cetera. but for them it was kind of like um photos that they could pass down as a source of pride kind of documenting progress in, in the country that they immigrated to like look like we have we are employed like we have like jobs we make an honest day's work have a car we have a car right. now that we didn't have before so it's kind of just like a lot of different i wouldn't even say duality because it's not even just like a two-sided thing it just it's like something that has many different faces and many different meanings yeah, yeah. so so the question is where does this anti-immigrant conservatism come from um, if oh. it was so different. Yeah. Um, as, a, as, a, as a side thing, I was just going to ask, like, does, does everyone have that picture, like, in their house? Like, some uncle or their mom or dad just, like, standing by a car. It's, like, new. I can't, like, five in, like, a photo album that my family has. Standing by you know? a car. Yeah. Or, like, anything, honestly, that they bought. No. I, I, I do. I have some of me, like, as a baby, like... My parents putting me on top of like a brand new like pickup truck or whatever, and, like, yeah. kind That's of like, or like yeah, or like a Nissan or something, and yeah, I, I I have, and then like I remember in one of them like my dad like, um, put like the little like tacky letters that you can put across the windshield, and like it said Daisy uh, on it, like aww. as if the, like so it was like in these fiery like you know like. The, <laughs> With like the, the flame, classic. like the flame effects, and it was like Daisy. Like, the cars was named Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, uh, but like, back to the anti-immigrant conservatism. Um, this is this is like an awkward time not to have like a really clear, concrete answer. But for me, it's always been like a, um, uh, an all of a sudden someone like comes up with a reason to why all this like cheap labor is coming it's like like I, I guess i guess my rhetoric is usually the rhetoric that people use now like um they're taking our jobs like oh they're doing nothing for the government and i guess um people don't need like graphs or like studies done they'll take it like at face value 
Um, and many people will believe that. Um, but I guess I don't really have a concrete answer. Well, I think that, like, you know, once these immigrants started, like, you alluded to this earlier, Axel, mm-hmm. when you said kind of, like, when when workers, like, immigrants start, you know, questioning pay or something like that and then kind of like the reaction from growers or farmers is kind of like how dare you kind of like bite the hand that feeds you type of thing Mm -hmm. um i i'm not i can't like pinpoint like any like one thing but i'd imagine that you know once you start seeing more um kind of like resistance that kind of starts leading to something so like a lot of like when when immigrants like in Georgia, since we're talking about like like Georgia right now, start receiving help from like U.S. institutions like the Georgia Legal Services Program, where they're kind of like filing suits for like wages that have not um, been being paid like correctly or like um, that have been lost. And maybe like once we start moving into like the early 2000s and we start seeing a little bit more activism by some of the Latinx youth, like, some of, like, the children of, like, mm-hmm. these immigrant like families. Yeah, like, Israel, <laughs> kind of, like, Israel, maybe, like, if he was, if he were to have, like, grown up and decided to be active in, like, these sorts of, like, movements, I feel like it, it's kind of, like, I would, I, my guess would be um, simultaneous with, like, the shift and what it means to be um, a conservative um, what we see kind of like right now slowly. Yeah, and there's there's one interesting story that I want to kind of to highlight to let um, others know, like specifically like what pro-immigrant conservative means. And I think there's something that very specific that could help you understand that. And um, there's a story about uh, kind of a a crew leader. Uh, his name was uh, his name was it was, it was the Avalos. He was he went by Slim though. That's how, uh, that was the okay, nickname he was Slim. given. <laughs> um and he he led a crew of actually like like mexican and and black agricultural laborers as well and there's this very kind of interesting point um on his story where one of the farmers was like it's, it's told that one of the farmers gives him a message and tells him hey keep your crew or anyone who's undocumented uh away from the farm because there's going to be either a check or a raid at, during that day and then that's something very interesting because you realize that in these situations i feel like that's one of the most <laughs> that's one of the most like pro-immigrant pro-undocumented immigrant thing you can do is like don't go through this checkpoint like, don't was, come to this place yeah no exactly so um and these people were saying we don't think what the government doing is, is right we don't think that they should be having this power to come and take people we don't think they should be messing you know with our business and and that was really it you know there was it was mm-hmm. their business mostly that they were protecting but in a way they were acknowledging that you know there was merit to having these immigrant workers around they they gave merit to the work that the immigrants did and and that's what kept some of this anti-immigrant stuff at bay for the south until you have kind of this like shift until you know we're talking about 15 max 20 years ago that a lot of this started and originally a lot of this was a lot of the bad, bad anti-immigrant stuff was Texas and the Southwest, mm-hmm. and it and it and it shaped what the country, what the nation was talking about. But you know, for for some periods of time, and we've talked about previous periods of time here in, in the in the podcast, um, there were some positive things towards immigrants here in the South, and nowadays I feel like we we 
especially me growing up kind of like right in, right after a lot of this shift happened it seems like it's always been bad it seems like we've always we've never had anyone to listen to us or represent us here but um it's it's definitely more dynamic it's more flexible and, and there's a whole history about it and now we want to take a little break and give thank you to our sponsors this podcast is produced by Ricky Hurtado, Eric Valera, and Julie Wise, with generous sponsorship from the Whiting Foundation, the University of Oregon College of Arts and Sciences, and Latinx Ed, edited by Dorian Gomez. So, funny stories. What you got for us today, Brian? Yeah, so um, a bit of a culture shock, or at least a misunderstanding. Uh, I've told you all about certain exes that I've had. And um, this one I'm specifically talking about is from uh, Puebla, Mexico. And um, one day, like, I, I just had, like, a free Sunday morning. And I I was going to go visit her. And I, she texted me saying her whole family was here. I'm like, I'm good. Like, I, I'm good. Um, <laughs> and I thought, like, wait, everyone loves pan dulce. If I'm going to make a good impression for most of her family, I'm going to bring pan dulce. And I got the porquitos, conchas of every color, uh, the little, like, elephant ears. I'm not uh-huh. sure what you call those. Um, and there I go. I'm off to her house. Uh, and then I knock on the door and you know, there's a lot of people there when somebody's niece opens the door and just like stares at me and I don't know who they are. And yeah. And as soon as I come in, uh, I see her, she rungs up. Um, I give those to her and just her whole family just like staring at me. And like the (laughs) silence is like so tense and, um, they open the bag and there's all these all these different breads, you know, and, um, they're like, thank you. Thank you. And they're just still staring at me, snickering. Um, and like, uh, then my ex, um, like pulls me to the side. I'm like, she says, what are you doing? And I thought like, I just wanted to be nice. And then she says like, they're talking about us getting married. And I'm like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And, um, so, uh, after she explained this to me, um, it was that uh, usually in her town, whenever the man brings like pan dulce for the family <laughs> or whatever, like it's supposed to be like also uh, a proposal of marriage. Yeah. So they're waiting I'm for Daniel. me to get down on one knee, pull out a ring. I'm like 18 at the time, <laughs> you know, and like <laughs> you just wanted some pan dulce, yeah. <laughs> some I porquitos. Just, <laughs> I just wanted a nice breakfast. Yeah. Um, and now like her. And like, um, I don't know if I spoiled this, but she is my ex, and we're not. (laughs) You did not get married. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Ended soon after that. Yeah. There you go. Relationships. (laughs) Oh my god. Back to uh, the story of Isabel Cortez. Actually, Um, since I guess everyone is really looking for closure, what really happened to him in the end? At the end of the story. So when Israel Cortez looks back at, you know, the obstacles he faced early on, what we talked about at the beginning in school with his culture, with the language, moving around, pursuing work, he he does say, you know, the early years were hard, that people were doing all sorts of things to, to him, like to his family. But then he kind of like finishes off by saying, we don't dwell on those things. We just keep moving forward. We have progressed. And what he means by that is that he says he made drastic changes. He said that 
He learned English. He converted to Protestantism. He adopted a Georgia accent. And in his words, he tried to fit in. Um, so I guess the way that the story, I guess not doesn't end for Israel, but at least in terms of the obstacles he faced, his the way that he grappled with them was kind of just like pushing past them and trying to fit in, trying to trying to make those obstacles non-existent, not, not necessarily, I guess, by existing in spite of them, but kind of, like, actually, like, targeting those things and, and changing them. So changing even, like, his religion. Yeah. I mean, I feel... I think there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of that kind of... Even with us, like... It, almost in instinctively we have to we we we, we consume the culture we consume just you know references or we we consume our education kind of here and so in a way and sometimes that's what we try to defend we try to defend that we're from here like you know we live here we we <laughs> we've grown up here and so you know i guess the way israel mentions it is that he had a change but sometimes it can also be that that's just who you are. Like, I, I can't say that, you know, from someone who came here at the age of seven that I'm still from Honduras. Barely. I, sometimes I say that I was born there. And so for me, it's almost just natural to say, like, this is this is how I talk. This is what I know. These are the people I know. These are this is the food I like. Um, so it's kind of interesting the way that he put it. Um, but I understand it. Definitely understand it. I, I, I definitely understand it, too, like, in the context of, like, we can't remain, I guess, like, a, a a bubble, like, not, there's no way for us not to be influenced, like, by the things around us. I, you know, when I moved to North Carolina from California, like, I didn't say y'all, <laughs> and then now I say y'all, and I think it's a pretty good, like, gender inclusive, like, word. There you go. Like, <laughs> so, I, yeah, it's really good. I, I, um... I endorse that word. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I feel like when I think about, like, how the time that I spent living, like, in my in, like, in, in Mexico, like, I kind of hold on to, like, I say, like, yes, like, I, I'm Mexican, like, and it's, like, a different way of, like, progressing, or it's, like, a different way of, I guess it depends on kind of, like, the context of, like, I don't know how much time you spend or how that time like went. I I'm not sure. Like I think everyone has different ways yeah. of like moving past and um ad adopting whatever like the influence of like the cultures like around them are. Um, I definitely don't. I I don't want to say like Israel Cortez like um, you know like bought into some like did something that I wouldn't have done because in many ways, like, I think we've all done it. But at the same time, um, I guess I hold on to this more, like, I, I don't know if it's naive, but uh, a vision where, where, where I can kind of like hold on to, to where I come from in a way that's much more like visible. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to add is that, it's it's so interesting how this was a stateless group. Like it's so interesting based on what we talked before. Like there was no Mexican government here, and mm -hmm. really we're talking about 
I like understood like their stories because they had not, no one to turn to. And so when I was thinking of like, I guess how I would do in, in a similar situation, I realized that it's similar to what happens for us now. And my question was to, to I guess to, to us and to anyone who's listening, you know, how do you grow up in a situation where you either experience some discrimination or experience some barriers to opportunities and some barriers to access resources that how do you defend, how do you defend your rights when you never got the chance to grow up in a place where you had rights, where you maybe immigrated from a country into a different country where you're almost never completely accepted as fully part of that society or full a full part or member of that community. And so I think it's a process like Israel that he came to say, we're going to grow, we're going to progress, we're going to learn. Um, but then there's the question is like, once you do that and once there's either a threat or something that you need, how can you defend yourself when you in a way didn't learn that? And I think that's something that's a question for, from, from all of us. That's something I've been working with. And I think, Uh, it'd be something that you can contemplate too. And thank you for listening. Uh, let us know what you think about this episode. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and like our Facebook page. All the links are there in the description below. Bueno, adios amigos. Bye. Ciao. Thank you so much. <laughs>